This class wrestles with one central problem with many facets. That is that ministry is not viewed as the vocation of the scholar, and the church is not viewed as the space out of which scholarship is done. <laughs> All right. <laughs> my cousin, everyone, my cousin. That was a lament. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to um, explain this claim a little bit, I'm going to invite you into my life, whether you like it or not. Uh, I entered my undergraduate career uh, as a ministry major at ACU, but, but I quickly transferred to an academic degree. I remember coming to the conclusion that I simply loved Greek too much to ever be a minister. This was an implicit acknowledgement of a dynamic between the church and the, the academy that, that I already really felt, that, that ministry had a set of goals and required a certain set of skills to achieve those goals. Um, and uh, those skills and those goals made scholarship a luxury at best and a setback or a roadblock at worst. So I disavowed ministry and pursued an academic degree in undergraduate and graduate school. And I, I remember specifically saying that I, would, I, I could never do youth ministry. I might be roped into other things along the way, but youth ministry was something I could never do. So tell where this is going. By the time I completed the coursework for my MA, I uh, still had a thesis to write, but my first child was born, and I didn't have the time to spend another semester writing a thesis. I didn't have the time to spend however long it would take to get into a PhD program, and so I, I swallowed my pride and somehow, by the grace of God, uh, landed uh, somewhere in ministry, youth ministry, specifically. <laughs> Later on, I would realize how lucky I was to even get a job, much less to land in the place that I did, with the people I did, which is here right now. Uh, and I'm really grateful for that opportunity. But at the time, I was devastated because it felt like failure. Felt like failure. I feared that nobody in the academic community would take me seriously any longer. And I feared uh, that my theological education would make me alien to the people back in the church, that I would uh, not be able to communicate any longer, that I would be suspect, that my views might even be viewed as heretical. And there's some validity to those fears, right? The church can be an inhospitable place for people with theological education, and the academic world can be even more inhospitable to people who don't have the right pedigree or the right credentials or who come from the outside. And I speak uh, to that issue with loads of experience but is it really the case, is it really the case that ministry and scholarship are so irreconcilable? Does it have to be that way, or is that just the situation in which we find ourselves? The question I want to ask today of these three great theologians, Reinhold Niebuhr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Martin Luther King Jr., all of whom happen to have pretty significant ministerial lives and vocations, is how their intellectual vocation was worked out with their ministerial vocation. And I want to do that with a view towards making space in the church, not saying this is the only way it has to be, 
that, that all ministers have to be theologians or anything like that, or that, that you shouldn't go into the academy. I just simply want to make space in the church, again, for the value, not just of having a theological education, but continuing that theological education as a part of your scholarly vocation in ministry. Space for development, integration, and communication of an ongoing critical engagement with the scholarly world as a minister. So before we begin, I want to make two confessions about stupid decisions I made for this session. Um, one is uh, I had to pick I picked three people to shove into one hour, and so necessarily uh, I regretted that. Uh, it, everything is going to be short and condensed, um, and there's going to be a lot left on the table, a lot left wanting. We're going to have some time uh, at the end to do Q&A discussion, and um, I hope that uh, if you know anything about these people or if you have something to add to the discussion, I hope that you do. Um, the other thing is that none of these people are my scholarly interests. Um, I come to each of them... Uh, having read maybe one or two things, you know, having read about them, uh, but I'm by no means an expert on Niebuhr or Bonhoeffer or MLK. Uh, this was some elaborate excuse just to like justify getting to time to find out more. But So many of you are probably more um, educated on, on each of these three figures than I am, and I'm happy to be wrong about anything in the end. So first, Reinhold Niebuhr. I confess it was hard to find a picture of him that did not look like Freddy Krueger. <laughs> Reinhold Lieber was born 1892 in Missouri to German immigrant parents. He adopted a, the pastoral vocation of his father, which led him to Bethel Evangelical Church in Detroit, Michigan, after his studies at Elmhurst College and Eden Theological Seminary and Yale Divinity School, where he completed uh, only a master's level education. Niebuhr uh, never earned the PhD, though he would go on to teach at Union Theological Seminary for quite some time and become one of America's greatest theologians. Uh, Obama even claimed him as one of uh, his favorite theologians, for better or for worse. You know, that may be a great thing for you or a bad thing. I'm not sure where you are on that, and I don't care. Um, <laughs> He's also a little bit famous for having written uh, a very early rudimentary version of the Serenity Prayer. This gets debated a bit, but I think at this point people will give him credit for something along the lines of God, give us courage to change what must be altered, serenity to accept what cannot be helped, and insight to know the one from the other. Uh, so probably among the three, he's the least well-known, but maybe most influential, uh, could be argued, maybe contested with uh, MLK. What's often missed or overlooked about him because he's known as a theologian is that he did spend 13 years as a minister, just a simple parish priest uh, at the Bethel Evangelical Church in Detroit. So from 1915 to 1928, that was his job and that was his life. Bethel was a congregation of 66 people. It was a German congregation. They spoke in German. Their services were in German for at least I think, the first three or four years. Um, and uh, partially due to his, uh, his brilliance, his ability to communicate effectively across uh, cultural lines, and partially due to the fact that this was the years of the great boom in Detroit, becoming the fourth largest city in America. His church grew from 66 to 700 people, roughly 700 people by the time he left in 1928. He offers us a glimpse of this experience in the book Leaves from the Notebook of the Tamed Senate, which I highly recommend reading. Uh, it's a wonderful, quick read. Uh, full of incredible insights um, that is basically kind of a diary 
of his time. Uh, it's, it's highly condensed. I'm really curious as to what he chose to, left, uh, to leave out of this. One of the charming aspects of, of living into his experience of ministry is that um, his experience is so much like everybody else's experience the first uh, several years of ministry. So early on, he reflects on how difficult it is to preach week in and week out. And he says, now that I've preached about a dozen sermons, I find I'm repeating myself. A different text simply means a different pretext for saying the same old thing. The prophet speaks only when he's inspired. The parish preacher has to speak whether he's inspired or not. (laughs) Yep, amen. That's when you can amen. In other ways, the book witnesses to the impact that his circumstances had on his ministry and thinking. There's two major events. The first is World War I, where Niebuhr was involved in limited ways as a chaplain. There were local camps and things nearby that that he would go. And during one of these times, uh, or at least during this time during World War I, he he kind of doubles down on his pacifism, which he kind of later uh, either rejects or nuances, depending on what your view of Niebuhr's relationship to war is. but uh, he's, he's at this camp, and he describes himself and his other chaplains as priests of the great god Mars. Let that sink in a little bit. Priest of the great god Mars. And so this is, uh, has a profoundly negative effect on his view of um, war and violence. The other influential factor was the burgeoning automotive industry in Detroit and his experiences of the socioeconomic problems that that brought up, um, especially in terms of social justice and economic exploitation and his uh, uh, pretty singing critique of capitalism. But in trying to think about the, the essence, what, what, where's a focus? Where's something that we can really dial in on and see something that is just very Niburian? Um, a, a sense of how his scholarship and his theological education functioned in his ministry. A theme emerges in his book that I describe as the minister, as the prophet of reality. And by that, I mean that, that he began to develop a sense of his ministerial vocation as a response or a corrective to either lazy or disingenuous or, or simply pragmatic, a kinds of ends over means equation, or intellectually dishonest notions of faith and society. This sense of the prophet of reality comes out in, in three major dimensions. The first is the sense of faith as is the opposite of what he calls magic. This comes up over and over again, references to magic and magical kinds of thinking that, that he particularly despises. The idea of magic um, is, is not like Harry Potter magic. It's not people going around casting spells and, and Wiccan and all that kind of stuff. But, but it's the sense in which faith can sometimes function like a kind of magic, right? That, that constructs false but pragmatic and useful notions of God and the world that, that we can then manipulate towards our own ends. He also describes this as superstitions and illusions. So uh, he writes later on in the journal, when religion renounces magic, it finds itself in the poor workaday world, trying to discover the glimpses of the eternal in the common scene. The eyes of so many people have been covered by superstitions and illusions that they are not strong enough to preserve their sight in the daylight of knowledge. Freed from their superstitions, they are blinded in the very moment that they are given an unhindered view. They could see beauty while they lived in twilight, but a brilliant light obscures life's beauty and meaning. I think he's doing a a little bit of a revision on Plato's cave. 
Um, he, he, he struggles with this in a grand theological sense, but he also struggles with it in a practical sense. He describes himself sitting in a hospital with one of his dying patients and wondering what the doctors think of him. Wonder if they think of him as, as uh, some kind of uh, voodoo witch or, or somebody who's telling his patient just to pray harder and longer uh, and, and he'll get better, who, who rejects Western medicine. He kind of feels that way. I don't know if, if you're a minister, uh, you may have felt that way. I know I have. So the important thing to notice in, in this particular quote is, is that faith, faith becomes transformed when it refuses the cheap comforts of this magical or superstitious paradigm. It's a new kind of faith. There is a faith that, that functions in a, in a kind of crippled way, uh, one that is, is blinded in so many ways, but it's still a faith. But when you take away the magic, the illusion, the superstition, there's a new faith that emerges, one that he ostensibly thinks is better. It's an honest faith that will inevitably yield far greater uh, sense of beauty and meaning in the world. The source of this kind of thinking uh, is the second dimension of the notion of the prophet of reality, which is the intellectually dishonest preaching often done in churches. So Niebuhr rails against uh, what in his context would be kind of a proto, uh, uh, or not, not a proto, but like a revivalism preaching of his day. He's dealing with, with the back end of, of the, the grand revivalistic traditions. Um, so later on he says, I object not so much to the emotionalism as to the lack of intellectual honesty of the average revival preacher. They seem never to realize how many of the miseries of mankind are due not to malice but to misdirected zeal and unbalanced virtue. They never help the people who corrupt family love by making the family a selfish unit in society or those who brutalize industry by excessive devotion to the prudential virtues. Of course, that is all inevitable enough. If you don't simplify issues, you can't arouse emotional crises. And I think it's really important to see that sarcastic biting tone there at the end of that quote. The final element is the ability and necessity to provide serious analysis, analysis and engagement with the difficult realities that magical or superstitious or intellectually dishonest thinking prohibits. So, again, Niebuhr complains, beside the brutal facts of modern industrial life, how futile are all our homiletical spoutings? The church is undoubtedly cultivating graces and preserving spiritual amenities in the more protected areas of society, but it isn't changing the essential facts of modern industrial civilization by a hair's breadth. It isn't even thinking about them. How many of you whether you're a minister or, or part of a church, uh, an intelligent person in a church, uh, struggle with the fact that the church, even if it's relevant, it just seems anemic. It seems unable to in any way alter the flow of our society. <coughs> These three elements, the repudiation or correction of superstitious and false thinking, the resistance to intellectual dishonesty in ministry, and the necessity to engage our social reality through a theological lens, they all help us to see the sense in which this great theologian integrates his burgeoning scholarly mind with ministerial practice on the ground. For Niebuhr, the scholarly minister navigates this transformation of faith from something divorced from reality, both intellectually and practically, to something grounded in the realities and cares and concerns of people. Many other things could be said about Niebuhr, but for the sake of time, we're going to move on. Uh, to our other two figures, both of whom were deeply influenced directly by Niebuhr. Uh, and so we'll turn to Bonhoeffer next. Slightly more palatable face to look at. 
Bonhoeffer was born 1906 in Prussia and died 1945 in the Flossenburg concentration camp in Germany as one of the last victims of the Nazi regime and near the end of World War II. He's probably most well known for the fact of his death because he died on account of his involvement in a failed assassination plot against Hitler. And I think that makes Bonhoeffer a really interesting person in the modern world. Um, there's, there's a book coming out um, talking about the ways in which he's, he's this amorphous blob that gets kind of taken and used for, on every different side of, of the political equation, of the theological equation. I myself am taking him and manipulating him toward my own ends today. Uh, and and hey, he can, you can do that because he's a universally likable figure because he resists the universally unlikable figure, right? <laughs> if there is a symbol of universal evil, at least in the modern Western mind, it's Hitler, you know? Unless you're a white supremacist, in which case, what's wrong with you? <laughs> um, so everybody can hate Hitler. Democrat and Republican can hate Hitler. Conservative and liberal can hate Hitler. And so anybody who, who is attached to him in that way as his opponent, as, his, as someone who defies him, uh, gets grabbed up as our hero on our side, who represents our values, because we also hate Hitler. Um, Bonhoeffer is, is remembered as this, this great activist, this great theologian, but what is often overlooked or trivialized is that he was a minister throughout his life, particularly a youth minister, um, or an anachronistic uh, and inaccurate, but uh, I'll explain a little bit about what I mean by that. So when Bonhoeffer finished his doctoral studies at the University of Berlin, if you're German, you do two dissertations and you finished his first one, many of his teachers and colleagues were surprised to find out that Bonhoeffer was planning on a, a pastoral calling. Uh, and they were surprised because he's such a promising intellectual. You know, um, The situation in Germany in 19... Uh, whatever this was, uh, in the early uh, 20th century... Wasn't, uh, didn't have such a divorce between the church and the academy, but, but there was still a sense of that's still kind of a practical thing, and the best and the brightest are the ones that go on and, and do the other uh, dissertation, the habilitation trift, and go on and teach in Tübingen and wherever else. But Bonhoeffer seems to have been consistently drawn, not really out of the academy so much, but into the church. It was, it was a sense of a calling, a sense of a vocation, a sense of this is where I belong. Um, and, and he says, it became clear to me that the life of a servant of Jesus Christ must belong to the church. And step by step, it became clear to me how far it must go. Bonhoeffer held a variety of appointments in different contexts. He served uh, first as a pastoral assistant in Barcelona, um, where he came in and his responsibility was primary to teach a Sunday school class for kids. And this is where he was, you know, the embodiment of a youth minister. He taught class, he, he, he helped the parents uh, train their kids, he, he grew this youth group and stuff, he even started preaching every once in a while, and he was so popular as a preacher that his supervisor, the main guy there, stopped telling people when he was preaching, because they would come to see him and not the main guy. Uh, there was a little bit of a, uh, a jealousy there. Um, so he did that uh, during his... Uh, he went back to Berlin shortly after that, where he was uh, a chaplain at a technical college, but still in this kind of chaplain position. He did teach some courses there. Uh, but he also had major responsibilities in the local parish, again, teaching Sunday school and a confirmation class, basically. Um, he, he went to New York City uh, for a time and was a volunteer Sunday school at the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, uh, where, again, he taught youth. 
And later on, he would spend a little over two years in London as just the parish priest for two different churches. And he did everything, but what he was most successful at was youth. Um, and so I, I think he, for me, is the prototypical youth minister scholar. Uh, when he returned to Germany, finally, uh, he, he returned still to kind of a pastoral vocation as the director of the seminary, the, um, where he had uh, certain uh, pastoral responsibilities in that as well before it was shut down and his life went on this trajectory um, in resistance to the uh, Third Reich. Uh, now, while Niebuhr never wrote anything during his tenure as a minister, uh, everything that Niebuhr wrote came later afterwards. It developed there, but it came later afterwards. Uh, Bonhoeffer is a person who is at once a minister and an active scholar, whose ministry is informed by his work uh, in relation to his theological engagement. Perhaps the most remarkable fact about Bonhoeffer's ministry, uh, which people aren't aware of, is the fact that he was uh, a, a primarily a minister to youth and children. Um, he, was, he was functionally a youth minister. And, and although these distinctions weren't made in his ecclesial context over and over and over again in uh, his writings, over and over again in the secondary literature, you find uh, references to the fact that this, this is really um, what made him. This is really his primary experience as a minister, his primary vocation as a minister. Uh, and in that regard, he was a pretty standard minister. He, he teaches classes on Sundays, works with, works with families of teenagers, um, he organizes trips and other programs for entertainment and bonding. At one point, he was working at Berlin, and he uh, uh, takes the children out uh, constantly to some land that his parents own, and, and he writes back to his family afterwards to uh, tell them about it. Uh, and he says, I'm very happy that I can be up here with the confirmants, even if they don't have uh, much understanding of the woods and nature, they are enthusiastic about climbing excursions in the boat at all and soccer in the meadow. I... I believe, too, that you won't see any changes to the house to show that these people have been here, except for one broken window pane. Everything is still intact. <laughs> yeah, he's youth minister. I blew up a golf cart once, but same thing. Um, but one of the remarkable features about Bonhoeffer himself was that um, he had an ability to, to bring pastoral intellectual vocation together. And to do not just be successful at this youth ministry, but to be successful in many other ways, in, in smaller ways in ministry, and also um, to exercise this pastoral or this intellectual vocation at the same time. So while he was at Barcelona working with children and teens as their minister, he also presented a set of theological lectures. He, he set it up, he established it, he advertised it, and somebody came. Um, and uh, they were mostly modeled after his first dissertation, Communio Sanctorum. He continues to give lectures, teach courses at local universities in his different contexts. He writes some of the most influential and widely read high-level theological papers and books while at the same time teaching confirmation classes and going on day trips to the country and breaking windows. <laughs> As he becomes more established within his, within his theological context, he, uh, he begins to be involved in both local ministry and, and national aspects of uh, his ecclesial um, context. And with the rise of the Third Reich and its rapid assimilation of German political and therefore ecclesial power, Bonhoeffer's ministerial vocation becomes fixated on, on the way in which the church needs to work at a theological response, not, not 
something that is, is just we need to live better, but he thinks it has to have a theological response, one, one that does both intellectually and, and practically and pragmatic. You can't have one without the other. It has to work out a theological response uh, to everything, all these crises that are growing up around it. And that leads to one of the major uh, themes of Bonhoeffer's theological notion of ministry, the youth minister as the concrete theologian. By concrete, I mean the opposite of abstract, not the sidewalks that you walk on. That could be an interesting a theology of concrete. For Bonhoeffer, the theological task of ministry is not to simplify or even to distill difficult theological ideas. We sometimes work with that paradigm where, where the theologian, the intellectual, is somebody who reads all the hard books and then he, he makes it all palatable for everybody else in his ministry and says it in, in language that dum-dums can understand. And, and I promise you that your, your uh, uh, people in your church don't like to be thought of as dum-dums. Um, it's not to simplify, it's not to distill difficult theological ideas, but to articulate and formulate a theological vision for lived reality, one that is compelling. You know, you can use big words, you might have to explain it to some people, you certainly want to resist bad pedagogical practices, uh, but it has to be compelling, it has to be realistic, it has to be uh, very well thought out and analyzed. So, so he writes uh, later on, the church can proclaim not principles that are always true, but rather only commandments that are true today. The, the commandment, love thy neighbor, is, is as such so general that it requires the strongest concretion if I am to hear what it means for me here and today. And only as such a concrete word to me is it God's word. And so we can take the issue of war, for instance. Bonhoeffer, uh, or because war was knocking on Europe's doorstep at the time during the better part of his uh, ministerial life, this becomes this, the kind of quintessential lived reality that ministers have to be able to speak into. And so he writes in, in basically the same page, the church must, in the event of a decision about war, not only to be able to say that there should be no war, but there are also necessary wars, and then kind of leave it up to each individual to apply this principle, Rather, the church should be able to say concretely, fight this war or don't fight this war. Mm. Be able to say it. And to be able to say it requires that you have the, the intellectual backing to actually be able to make claims like that. So not only does Bonhoeffer demonstrate with his career the, the intersection of academic and pastoral work, he works out in many different places the intellectual aspect of ministry that demands complex and authoritative responses to equally as complex and critical issues in the lived experience with the church, both individual and social, both private and public. And here we're kind of edging closer and closer to Martin Luther King Jr., uh, our last theologian for today. Somebody give me the time. I'm, I'm still on Eastern time. 10-12. Okay, we're, we're doing fine. Martin Luther King Jr., our last theologian, also our best-looking theologian, I would argue. <laughs> so... Uh, I'm not sure how much needs to be said about uh, MLK's biography. I, I hope we're all fairly well familiar with at least the, the broad strokes. Uh, the particulars, he was born in 1929 in Atlanta, died in 1968 in Memphis. Many know MLK as the, the preacher and the civil rights uh, leader, but um, as opposed to the other two theologians we, theologians we discussed who many sometimes don't know they were ministers, uh, in Mokay, many sometimes don't know that, that he's uh, quite an advanced student. He did earn a, a PhD at Boston University. There's a little bit of an asterisk about questions of plagiarism, but uh, he still did all the work 
um, to go through that. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll kind of skip over uh, all the, the question of plagiarism uh, because at the end of the day, he's still uh, quite a competent uh, theologian, and some of those questions about plagiarism, uh, in some ways, could uh, be brought down to different contexts and nuances of his own culture and practices. So King would preach regularly, regardless of where he was during the course of his theological education. Uh, he went to Morehouse College, he went to Crozer Theological Seminary, which is now Rochester Colgate, um, and then he went to Boston University after that. And he would, he would preach regularly in, in many different places. Uh, he would often win contests because he was a gifted speaker. But his first official assignment was as uh, an assistant minister at the 12th uh, Street Baptist Church in Boston while he was a student at Boston University. And then after graduating from Boston University, MLK, uh, was, uh, he accepted the call to the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, which I think is now the Dexter Avenue King Baptist Church? I don't know. I think King has been put into the name so people know, oh, it's that one. And King served there from, from 1954 all the way to 1960, um, at which point he became too busy to justify his continued service. So MLK would then resign from that and take an assistant position at his father's old church, the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, where he would, uh, he would still preach pretty regularly and be involved in some of the pastoral uh, issues of that church. Um, his work really at Dexter Avenue, though, was, was interrupted very quickly because not, you know, maybe a, a matter of months after he arrived there was when the Montgomery bus boycott uh, began. And that just kind of took him up in a wave and a flurry of activity. And, and uh, it, it really, in some ways, interrupted his vocation as a pastor, which he often very much regretted. Uh, he described himself as doing the work of, of three men which is a part of his note of resignation to Dexter Avenue. He didn't feel like he was doing them justice as their minister. But uh, for those uh, six years there, um, he, he did engage uh, in very, to varying degrees of success as a minister of that church. Uh, so MLK's father was, was a minister as well at this Ebenezer Baptist Church. Um, but growing up, MLK was skeptical of joining the ministry. In many ways... Uh, he had a natural aversion to what he views as a kind of false emotivism in religion. So, so he writes, no, that's not it. Um, we'll just leave that up there. We'll get to that one. Uh, he writes, I revolted against the emotionalism of Negro religion, the shouting and the stomping. I didn't understand it, and it embarrassed me. Um, he ended up, though, settling with ministry, uh, saying that the black pulpit, if used correctly, could, be, could have a far greater effect on society. Even after he graduated from Boston University, he, he still kind of struggled with, with the desire to stay in the North with its many social advantages and the opportunity to teach, um, and what I will refer to as, as the existential call, and I'll explain what that means, to return to his home in the South. So reflecting on this tension, he, he writes this, the South, after all, was our home. Despite its shortcomings, we had a real desire to do something about the problems that we had felt so keenly as youngsters. We never wanted to be considered detached spectators. Since racial discrimination was most intense in the South, we felt that some of the Negroes who had received a portion of their training in other sections of the country should return to share their broader contacts and educational experience. Moreover, despite having to sacrifice much of the cultural life we loved, despite the existence of Jim Crow, which kept reminding us at all times of the color of our skin, we had the feeling that something remarkable was unfolding in the South, 
and we wanted to be on hand to witness it. Much earlier in his seminary years, uh, Martin Luther King wrote an essay called On the Preaching Ministry for a class called The Preaching Ministry, Go Figure. Um, And in that essay, he formulated a vision of his ministry that would continue to inform his practice. So, So he writes in part of the essay, there's a great paradox in preaching. On the one hand, it may be very helpful, and on the other, it may be very pernicious. It is my opinion that sincerity is not enough for the preaching ministry. The minister must be both sincere and intelligent. Too often our ministers possess the former, but not the latter. (laughs) And at the conclusion of this paper, uh, MLK uh, MLK describes preaching as a dual process. Above all, I see the preaching ministry as a dual process. On the one hand, I must attempt to change the soul of individuals so that their societies may be changed. On the other, I must attempt to change the societies so that the individual soul will have a chance. This dual concern... for the actualization of both his internal spiritual ideals and his external social ideals is what I call the existential concern of the scholar. MLK was drawn to the church as the space in which these ideals, these ideals that were formed and informed by his scholarly vocation could be realized. Something could be done about them. I could see them and look at them in action. But it would be a mistake to frame this as a kind of just a static moment, something that happens that I, that I take all this stuff and then I put it into action and that's just what ministry is. That, uh, that's not what it was for MLK. Instead, his, his life and work embodied an unfolding conversation between his theological vision and its existential appropriation in his work. So he brought his scholarship to bear in the church and society and sometimes those domains pushed back against him and challenged him about whether his, his scholarship was, was accurate in this, whether his view, whether his ideals were appropriate and realistic. Uh, and, and so they pushed back. And so there is this back and forth in which ideas and circumstances redefine one another continually, continually. He's learning and developing even after his, his PhD at Boston University. The key here is to note that, that Martin Luther King continued to engage and develop his theological education in the context of the church and society, which is evident in his books and sermons. And he's doing it at the highest level possible, interacting and engaging with the best literature around him. Now, I hope this has been at least interesting uh, for everyone here, regardless of where you come from, what your interests are. Um, but they, uh, they told me uh, about the, the context of Pepperdine and, and who you know, would be here, a little mix of, of everybody, and, and I didn't necessarily want to speak to everybody, and so I decided just to speak to the context I wanted to speak to. Um, uh, so I hope this is great for you, but I really I want to talk to students of religion who feel like ministry and academia are an either-or, and the professors who are teaching them and the churches, uh, churches, is that a word? Yeah, well, intellectuals make up words. The churches who might receive them. (laughs) Very post-structural of you. What I want to say is that ministry can be an extraordinary space, space in which to work out a scholarly vocation. The church needs it, and it can be done. I don't want to grieve academic theologians who serve the church in other ways. I think that's a perfectly uh, amazing vocation, and I don't want to grieve ministers who have other abilities and talents and not necessarily um, a a theological bone in their body. Um, I'm not sure if that exists, uh, but if it did exist, I wouldn't 
uh, begrudge them their vocation. Everybody has their place in the work of the kingdom. What I'm trying to do is carve out a little space in the church for us scholarly types to suggest that this can be a force of renewal and revitalization in the church. So I'll briefly work backwards through these figures to lay out the broad strokes of the vision of the scholarly vocation of ministry and then open it up for classroom discussion. There's a lot of overlap between these three three figures, naturally, uh, partially because of the influence of Niebuhr on both of them directly. Uh, they, they were both kind of in his orbit. Um, and and, and I, I know that uh, Bonhoeffer took courses from Niebuhr and had lots of correspondence. I, I couldn't determine whether MLK uh, had engaged with Niebuhr personally, but he had read Niebuhr extensively. And I wouldn't be surprised to find out that, that he did know him personally. Um, so each of them in their own way make comments, though, um, and, and they embody the ideals of one another. There's, there's so much overlap. It was difficult to say this person's thing is this and this person's thing is this because in some ways they are all embody each of those three things that we've talked about. But I've tried to focus each figure on a theme which I think can be most clearly seen in their work as opposed to other people's works. So with MLK, we get a sense of ministry as, as the telos of scholarship. It, it's natural and, and concluding end. It is the place in which one's ideals Uh, which are formed and informed by theological education, can take shape. And this is not the only place, but my point is that sometimes we forget that it is a place for this to happen, and probably one of the more important places that it does happen. We also get a sense of how the church enters into conversation with these ideals so that one's scholarly vocation becomes a means of working out this formative tension between ideals and realities in the church and the actual lives of people. So with Bonhoeffer, we, we get the sense in which the stakes are are quite high when the minister enters into theological work for the church. We may not be on the brink of of, of a Hitler. We may be, I don't know. Uh, But every minister does this work for the church, and the stakes are always high. Every minister does. Whether they're educated or not, they do theological work for the church. It's unavoidable. The question is not whether theology is done. The question is whether it's any good. And that question is often defined not by the intelligence of the individual minister, but the sources and dialogue partners that minister chooses to engage. If all you're reading is, is kind of surface-level stuff that, that's devotional, well, that stuff's fine and good for what it is. But if that's all the minister is reading, that's a problem not only for him but for the church. So part of the formative vision for the scholarly vocation of the minister is that the kinds of books that cross their desk or podcasts they listen to or blogs that they read ought to, more often than not, represent serious, critical, informed thinking and engagement with whatever subject that they are researching. That is not often what we think of when we think of ministerial literature or preaching. Finally, with Niebuhr, we get a sense of the transformative power of the, well... Scholarly ministers aren't good at, at this. The, with Niebuhr, we get a sense of the transformative power of the scholarly vocation for the minister and his church for faith. As anyone who has gained a theological education can attest, the educational itself reshapes you dramatically. Uh, I, I like to describe what it's like to go into ministry after seminary, seminary as theological whiplash. You spend all this time, you know, especially if you do undergrad as well, you spend... Uh, four, five, six years in, in this you know, unique theological space and then you're, you're thrust back into a church that even if you came from that church, you no longer recognize them and they don't quite recognize you anymore. We at least all sing a cappella and so we can get along on that one. Um, 
sorry, I lost my place. I ad-libbed and said things about acapella. I think this is one reason why people with a scholarly vocation are often hesitant to enter into ministry, though I know that's part of my reason. The problem here is that there is a tacit assumption that nothing can be done about this, that, that people will be put off by the knowledge that you were acquired and the ways in which uh, that has formed you as a Christian. When in reality, my experience has been that, that if one learns to enter into the work of ministry humbly and passionately and has people around you that can help hone your gifts and help humble you and, and teach you how to use those gifts, if one shows real interest and concern for the lives of people in the church, and if one is thoughtful about pedagogy and presentation, then it will become clear that people are hungry for a more intellectually serious, defensible faith. Everybody that I've encountered in the church, every, every lay person I've encountered in the church doesn't dislike people with knowledge. They dislike jerks who lord it over them. <laughs> My goal here was to outline a vision for the scholarly vocation of ministers and or ministry, but I want to open this up to a dialogue because I'm, I'm, I uh, really know that I'm not the only one thinking this way. In fact, uh, I'll give a little bit of kudos to uh, Jeremy, wherever you are. His presentation uh, on Wednesday morning was a fantastic example of what this looks like in practice. Um, so everybody should go back in time and go to that. Um, so questions, discussions, rebuttals? Yeah. I think we're, some of this I think is a little bit of an arms race too. Um, I think historically in Churches of Christ, a hundred years ago, we had tons of people that had only high school educations. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the need for the minister to engage in that higher level criticism wasn't necessarily there because those questions were arising with the people. Mm -hmm. But as we become a more educated country, as more and more people go to college, as now master's degrees are becoming the new bachelor degrees, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know where we live, I meet lots of people who are postdoctoral students. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what that means, <laughs> you know? Right. And so for me, I feel like there's a natural like I said, arms race. Mm -hmm. That if I am not engaging in those higher level worlds, I'm not able to keep pace with the society around me. Mm. And I think that's another factor that hits us, particularly hits us as a movement that maybe has been more rural and around less uh, college educated people, maybe historically, now coming into a century where most of our people will have degrees. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that also speaks to, you know, if you put us in the evangelical bubble, um, which may or may not be the right place to put us, but um, you've got a lot of people who are becoming a little bit bitter about uh, the ways in which people with an education, you know, they, they're saying, what do you mean we're not smart? You know, and so you've got this kind of contest there, and, and instead of joining that movement towards truth, you know, they just double down on a kind of fundamentalist attitude um, and embrace that deeply. Uh, yeah. I would add to that, there's also, for me, you know, I resonate with Sam, you Mr. Bonhoeffer. There's so much busyness of the culture that there's almost no time for, for the practical layperson, in their view, to, to, to have that conversation, to have these thoughts. Mm -hmm. They're so worried about taking care of their kids, mm -hmm. and just getting them through it. That's what culture is teaching them. Give me a quick demo, give me something quick so I can just teach my kids and get on with it. Right. And you can't do that in five minutes. Yeah. Do you have an idea of how to fix that? Uh, no, no. <laughs> one person, one person at a time. Honestly, yeah. You try to find the best person you can to, to be a hybrid and help make that happen. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, I I found um, a similar. You know, I've got I've got two kids, so a full time job, and um, 
you know, for me, trying to also be engaged in the academic world and to write things for conferences and publishes, you know, a lot of late nights, a lot of lack of sleep, a lot of disappointment in my own self for, you know, feeling like I'm wasting time. Um, so there's so many dynamics that um, even for the minister who tries to be academically engaged, it's, it, it's difficult. It's a very difficult slog, and I think that's especially true for parents who don't have this theological education, and so, you know, wouldn't even know where to look. You know, I, I took my brother-in-law to half-price books, and we were scanning the theological section, and he's like, how do you know what books to pick out? And, you know, I was like, huh. Like, he doesn't even know what, what are good and what, what are bad. I told him, don't pick books with people's pictures on them. All guests are helping, though, I'll tell you that. They're, yeah, that's a good source of renewal. They're in the car, they want to listen, they can, they can engage that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey and then Bob. Also, historically, I mean, we have we think that historically, it just goes back you know, to when we were here. But historically, in the Churches of Christ, it, it also goes back. I mean, you have Lemoyne Lewis, you have Jack Lewis, both going off to Harvard. You have Thomas Albright. You have um, uh, the Yale. Yale. Who am I thinking of? Yale. Abraham Alherby. Yeah, Abraham Alherby. Um, all these folks. And what were they doing when they were in school at those institutions? They were all preaching for local churches. Mm -hmm. um, they were all working and preaching for local churches as they were pursuing you know, this, this idea. I just wanted to be a scholar in a movement that didn't have that level of scholarship. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something about our DNA. I, I, I get to you that, that we have this in our DNA. We have so many scholars that are ministers and so many ministers that have done really good scholarly work that, that we really need to make sure it doesn't die for the people that, that are gifted and called into that. I mean, Lemoyne Lewis just went and then he just started pulling all these other people, you know, Everett Ferguson and Abe Malherby right. and Leroy Garrett and saying, you're smart, go up to Harvard. Um, and uh, Garrett ended up being a, um, well, he's a bit of a hybrid. Um, <laughs> but I love him anyway. Uh, Bobby. Uh, first of all, I think it was a great presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Um, historically, the scholars of the world have been pastors. Yeah, right. Augustine and Martin Luther and all John Calvin and all these guys, they were all actively engaged in local ministry. Mm -hmm. And in our tradition, I think the 20th century is kind of unique. Because if you go to the 19th century, it's hard to find folks who are more intelligent and scholarly right. than Alexander Campbell. Sure, yeah. And if you find folks like Moses Lord, you know, who can literally, they can run circles around most average <coughs> ministers today by quoting the Book of Romans in Greek and Latin and other languages, and preaching in the middle of Kentucky, you know, and, and it was at, at one point the minister was the educated person. And we have gone the other direction now where at least for a good period of time in the 20th century, where we had an anti-education uh, bias. The second thing I want to just point out is that Luther, not Luther, but Martin Luther King and Dietrich Bonhoeffer were both 39 years old when they died. So you don't have to be old yeah. to oh, okay. be a theologian. You might not get old if you are. I was going to say, is that your point? pastors, theologians, and young. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, you know, 
I thought youth ministry of all things would kill my academic career. You know, I thought that was just the, the knife that killed it. Uh, but I, I look back on my time in youth ministry as one of the most dynamic times in which I was able to integrate this yeah. academic stuff that I was doing with my, with my vocation. Part of that is, is Eddie's fault. Uh, and Annette's fault for allowing me to do that and, <laughs> and to occasionally blow up a golf cart. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the things that I keep coming back to just looking at these three in particular is that they are what I would call public theologians mm -hmm. in the sense that they are addressing and trying to shape and form um, the culture towards certain ends. And I think one of the problems that I've seen in evangelical, evangelicalism in my time, maybe shortly before me, because it's essentially it was high, hijacked by the religious right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the public theology has just become either anemic or toxic. I mean, you go back to what King Martin Luther King was saying there in your final slide from him, that... That we, we are going to, we're working to transform and, and kind of shape the individual heart so that we can have a better society. But we're also working on society so this individual can have a fighting chance. Mm -hmm. The evangelicalism that so many of us inherit, and this is so inherent in what we do a lot of times in churches of Christ, because we came out of that modernist, very individualistic culture, right? Is that we don't give a damn about shaping the culture unless it is part of my fringe unless it has something unless it has something to do with one of our pet issues but obviously King is talking about forming the culture in terms of racism in terms of these systemic things that are holding <coughs> back so that we can and, and, and I, I, that's the thing I hope that more people are really starting to engage and, and re-engage with these guys because I know for a while because you know uh, Stanley Hauerwas was so in ascendancy 20 years ago people were kind of forgetting about these guys mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because this is a different vision right but this is a vision I think I'm just I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is basically sorry I said all that I'm saying thank you even if these guys are not your first place of study Thank you for bringing them up because they need to be brought to our attention because I feel right now, in this American moment, we need the vision that those three provided. So I just want to thank you for bringing them up and hopefully we will go forward from here and devour them a bit more. So right. don't you think Lipscomb's approach and his view of, of kind of retracting have an impact on us in that regard? I believe so, and I think that's why, because I know even if you go back to me 15 years ago, I was real enamored with Howard Wasp because I saw, and people like that, because I saw that as a continuation of what I see out of Lipscomb. I am no longer enamored with that because I do think that ultimately someone like Niebuhr who would say, guys, that retraction, that's irresponsible. And I'm, I'm really feeling the weight of that at this point in my life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that maybe that point of time when I was the pacifist who was trying to pull the Benedict option kind of thing, that that maybe, without it meaning to be on my part, but that might have been an irresponsible choice. So I'm glad that, that I, I feel like there's a movement right now that we're seeing these guys' names more. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing, and I think these guys are needed and they're, they provide a good model. Yeah. Because the to me the question is not to, is not is the minister going to be a scholar? 
is, is he going to be a public intellectual? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that's what a lot of us are wrestling with. Right, yeah. I, I want to I wanna center in on something that you said, but first, Bobby, the hashtag is PBL. Uh, make sure it's that gone viral. make sure you get that one out. Uh, but good. Um, so you were talking about how you know, and part part of the 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 reason for this is that we our institutions are becoming more liberal art institutions, and we're getting uh, a much broader education. Um, it's not it's non dogmatic education, but that ministers are now talking a lot more about. Howard Wass and these uh, uh, more public theological ideas, I would say. In public, I mean like um, where us and the Methodists and everybody else are talking about the same people instead of us doing our thing and Methodists doing their thing, et cetera. Um, and which, which says that we're asking different questions right. about faith. And, and part of this is this transformative effect, the way in which that changes our faith. You know, not changes like we're not, not Christian anymore, but we see Christianity in a different light and we function differently in it. And part of the kind of divisions between uh, like an evangelical Christianity and a mainstream Protestant Christianity have to do with the language that you're using and the questions that you're asking and how that shapes uh, your faith, your, your being in the world in relation to yourself and God and creation. Um, which again is a statement that would have never been uttered, you know, a century ago. Uh, even though we've, we've always had our our guys. What else? We've got a few minutes, um, David and then Eddie. I just want to ask what role Martin Luther has in all three of these and how that relates to eschatology. Yeah. <laughs> I told him I was going to do that last week. Yeah. Um, so as somebody who chose the academic path, mm -hmm. but um, was tinkering back and forth between doing this or chaplaincy um, back when I couldn't get into a BSc program, because um, it's hard. It takes a, takes a long time sometimes to on that path. Um, I think that some of this onus is also on us as university professors, and this is not to criticize any of my professors, so I won't mention any names, but you know, I was told a story about like the, you know, the, the, the Albright wave to Harvard, to Harvard that, um, oh, they all did their, their dissertations on second, te second Temple Apocryphal stuff so they could be critical without having to mess with the Bible. And so that they could preach and you know not worry about destroying someone's uh, destroying someone's faith in Genesis by mentioning source criticism. It's okay to do source criticism on Baruch, but nobody cares. But if you do source criticism on Genesis and introduce that to the church, you're destroying everyone's faith. Mm. Um, and then I, I was taking a class on Job at ACU, and I remember bringing up, why are we talking about uh, you know Elihu and the developmental phases of this book? And I was told that well, ministers don't need to know that. Mm. It doesn't mm. preach. Who cares about the developmental stage of the book of Job? And that was really frustrating to me. So it starts turning me off and saying, okay, I can't do any of this academic stuff in the church mm -hmm. because I was, I'm being told by my professors mm -hmm. that you can't do that. And um, I, you know, I think that some of the onus is on professors to, to try to figure out how to come up with better models. Yeah. Uh, and some of that is, well, we don't have better models because we don't have guys like you doing scholarly ministry combinations for us to point to, to say, oh, this person's doing it really well. And, and they're so, still alive. Yeah, and they're still here. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm 32. I'm not yet 
35 or whatever. And some of this is a, geography, a ge geographical issue. I mean, it's easier to have some of these conversations where you have postdocs in places like you know Rhode Island and Connecticut and Boston and, and then um, in Oklahoma City where, where I grew up. Yeah, well, I will say, so like, yeah. you better believe when I did my MA in theology at ACU that I thought we were the smart ones and all the MDiv students were idiots. You, you better believe that prejudice exists in your theological institution. It absolutely does. And that was part of the w reason why I was devastated, because all of a sudden I was part of the idiot crowd. You know? And that's just a, a, a bad part of my development, my prejudice, that really was uh, shook in me. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, they weren't idiots. Uh, they may not have been interested at the level I was in this material, but they weren't idiots. Um, but But it's really... You know, not it's not for everybody, uh, but the old adage, those those who uh, can't do teach, I think it's reversed now. Those who can't teach do, um, in theological circles. So find you know if you can identify students that that are gifted and maybe get you know seem to have uh, an ability to work with people um, and think theologically, you know, find them and and say, don't you hold off on the PhD for a little bit, you know, maybe. Put it on your radar, but but do ministry first or something like that. You know, um, save you a lot of heartache, anyways. Um, <laughs> Eddie. Well, I was uh, as you're talking about these these fellows and their their uh, capacity. Uh, one of the things that, that I've I've noticed is that in in, in the church that you have the uh, the uh, Google Seminary uh, that, is, that is taking place in the pews as you're as you're preaching, and somebody can boil up and go. Well, I was just looking, and they meant they were just looking. Uh -huh. uh, and, and what about this? And what about that? And, and, and so there's this kind of uh, this kind of democratization of annoyance uh, <laughs> that, that just comes that can come out of out of people that are just fact checking you and back checking you uh, in the process. So it, so that that means it's got to be you've got to go pretty deep to just make sure you're standing in a good place because there's a lot of weird. Stuff out there that can come at you from the sidelines. Yeah, yeah. So there's some kind of uh, having having a, a really good anchoring uh, in, in, in thoughtful uh, mm -hmm. reflection and, and research helps. And that's that says people are already playing in these worlds, and so we've got to be able to um, help people <laughs> grasp these worlds the same way that that our professors helped us grasp these worlds. And use it in a good way, and not just go to Bible Hub and say, "Well, the Greek for this says this." And really, right? I I got the dean of the Yale Divinity School at our uh, church once a month, and uh, I he you know he models uh, just the perfect kind of, of ability to appreciate something, even if he thinks I'm wrong, or even if I make a stupid mis exegetical mistake or a misreading. But then I've got you know Joe Schmo here on, on the aisle that, that kind of wants to take me down afterwards. And I'm just like, well, he, if he doesn't think it's bad, then you shouldn't think it's bad. You know, uh, Caleb, and then we got to be done. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I'm interested in this systemically, too. Mm -hmm. I think our graduate schools are a bit schizophrenic mm -hmm. in that they're raising money by getting little old ladies to give $50 towards training ministers. And then they're graduating classes that are 60% academics. I think that's hard. I think the other thing for us as a church is it comes down to our HR and how our elderships treat preachers. Yep. There are a lot of guys in grad school that are confident that the dean of a Bible department will be a better boss than the elders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they're just thinking about where can I be and I won't get fired.
Mm-hmm. And I think we're losing some of these scholar scholar ministers because mm-hmm. they are afraid that if they get at a church, they will, you know, their kids will have to go to six different elementary schools right. because they won't be able to be themselves and, and, and keep a job. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where our congregations have to start thinking: what kind of people do we want, and are we creating negative selection mm-hmm. by the ways that we handle hiring and firing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, amen. I I was super lucky to land where I did in the places I did, even the. Uh, the more difficult churches I work with were at least more understanding. Um, and uh, I think a lot of ministers land in very less hospitable places. So, um, you, okay, you get the last word and then everyone can leave. That's sweet. You know, I've been preaching for 23 years and um, I don't know how academic I am, but I've preached in congregations with 23 PhDs and then I'm preaching in Podunk, Mississippi as well, uh, across the way, I have found, first of all, being scholarly doesn't make you an isolationist or condescending. I have found down through the years that our congregations are tired of being treated as if they're a bunch of stupids, okay? Because they are thinking and asking questions, and they want somebody who can help them ask these questions and think about them in a proper way. And most of the time, it is these people who are looking for their money and all that kind of jazz, or the, the schools and all that kind of, that, that, that are keeping us from addressing these in a proper, loving way that people are asking these questions. And, I, and, and people, when you actually do it, they're like, wow, thank you for actually doing that. Mm-hmm. Because I've been thinking about this for a long time, and nobody has ever said a word in church. So I think that our people are ready. You know, that doesn't mean say, "Oh, well, cue or not to cue." You know, you don't have to do that. But to actually know what you're talking about and address some of the issues that people are wrestling with, that makes all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. And. Um, so I, I think our people are looking for that. I really do. Yeah. I've never had anybody, including elders, and I think this is where the minister comes in. We need to have a discipling relationship with them, cultivate those relationships. We pray with them. We become friends, or we're in a full partnership with one another. And if you gain that trust with them, they listen too. And it's amazing when your elders start looking at you and they say, you know, you are a resource here for us. And that's the way it ought to be. Mm-hmm. But we have to, as ministers, also have to be confident enough. And this is where Luther, Martin Luther King, and Bonhoeffer and these guys, they can help us. Yeah, yeah. To, um, know what we're talking about. Yeah, that's a good last word. So uh, I really appreciate everybody for coming and engaging in the conversation. Thank you.